You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. After months of heat waves and temperature records being smashed across Asia, there's two words in Spanish we really didn't need to hear making world headlines in this past week. El Nino. El Nino. El Nino. That's right, you guys. We are talking about El Nino. It sounds harmless. El Nino, doesn't it? But the return of the climate pattern has scientists bracing for the worst. El Nino, or to use its official name, the El Nino Southern Oscillation is back once again. Climate scientists are saying it's started much earlier than usual. And as a result, it's going to make for a very long, hot summer, first in the Northern Hemisphere and then south of the equator. Of course, if you live in Canada or New York, you already know it's going to be a tough summer. For those in the northeastern United States, it looks more like Mars outside than the planet Earth. Wildfire smoke from Canada has billowed across the border. New York City now registering the worst air quality of any major city in the world. More than six million acres have already burned in what's shaping up to be Canada's worst fire season on record. Millions of people in North America have been advised to wear high-grade masks. Everybody, I don't care if you're 15, 55 or 80, 85, everybody should be avoiding outdoor activities. Over here on the Asian side of the planet, we've been experiencing extreme heat since April. Record-breaking temperatures have been recorded in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, the Philippines and Vietnam. Towards the end of April this year, Thailand's National Weather Service reported the heat index had hit a record of 54 degrees Celsius. That's almost 130 degrees Fahrenheit. That was just four days after 100 weather stations in Yunnan province in southern China broke their temperature records as well. There are now predictions that this year, 2023, will be the hottest year on record for the entire world. As you already know by now, there are two major global climate systems, El Niño and La Niña. Global temperatures fall with La Niña and they rise with El Niño. The only problem is, the past three years of La Niña have been warmer than the last El Niño system in 2016. And now, it's about to get much hotter. Back in September last year, we brought you an episode looking at the massive heat waves affecting China. 41 days of extreme heat had dried up rivers and lakes. Multiple hydroelectric power plants along Yangtze River were shut down as the water levels dropped. There were power outages and brownouts in factories and homes, and farmers had to watch their crops wither and die. Here we are, 10 months later, and the forecast is for a very cruel summer indeed. Is China ready for this? That's what we're going to talk about in this episode of the Inside China podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Holly Chick, science reporter for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. 
the reality of El Nino for China this year is much more than baking heat. It's an escalation in climate change events that have already been happening this year. It's searing hot in some parts of China, while in others, huge thunderstorms are smashing crops and causing floods and landslides. Let me recap for you what's happened across mainland China in the past several weeks. In Henan province, the region that grows more than a quarter of the country's entire wheat supply, millions of tons of unharvested wheat were threatened with destruction because of heavy rainfall. The Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs basically called for an emergency harvest, while the government suggested the major buyers of wheat offer higher than normal prices for low-quality grain. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, located in the far west, consistently recorded temperatures above 45 degrees for three days straight. That's 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, regions in central China have been recording temperatures of more than 35 degrees Celsius. And in the east, the intense heat is so bad that animals are simply dropping dead. In the eastern Jiangsu province, a power outage at a farm meant the fans couldn't circulate air in the stores, causing hundreds of pigs to suffocate and die. In the southwestern Guangxi region, High water temperatures caused a large fish kill. And in the southwestern Sichuan province, high temperatures have led to rabbit deaths. And this has caused meat prices in local markets to surge. All of this is just the tip of a rapidly melting iceberg. What's going to happen when the real heat of summer arrives in July and August? In our September episode, we were reporting on the record-breaking heat waves in southwestern China and how it was affecting millions of people in one of the world's busiest industrial regions. This is what Richard Brubaker, a veteran sustainability expert based in Shanghai, had to say to us back then. If you look at how the price of water is valued right now here, it's dramatically lower than, say, you'd find in Northern Europe or in many other parts of the world. And so what I feel will likely happen over the medium to long term is that the price of water will be forced up and that will force water efficiency programs, energy efficiency programs, you know, food, agricultural technologies to come online. And, and that's all gonna come out of this understanding that they could run out of water in the areas where they were known to be water rich. And that is going to be a seismic shift Richard, it's been 10 months since you told us that here we are on the verge of an even hotter summer than last year. Has there been a seismic shift in China's management of water? It's always fun to listen to your words and realize, wow, uh, you weren't wrong. Um, so there has been no seismic shift, but you can see the signals that the awareness is coming, that they're recognizing the size, scope of this challenge and the urgency. And so a few things that have been happening is, yes, the price of water has been increasing, both as a function of industrial users, commercial users, residential users of water directly, but also in terms of the byproducts, so steam. And so I was talking with someone in the chemical industry who talked about how their cost of water 
but more so their cost of steam had risen dramatically. Uh, steam being 80% in the city that they were in increase in the last year. But more interestingly, when it came to the longer term, five, 10 years out, and the need to drive investment and innovation, we recently did a piece of work around environmental monitoring investment coming into China, helping firms trying to figure out what the opportunity for solution providers are. And what we found was if you look at the foreign investment catalog, there's 14 provinces that specifically call out the need for agricultural applications for water efficiency. And then there's another 20, 25 areas where they specifically mention water, either in the industrial context, the municipal context, or in the waste treatment context. So there's a recognition that is happening. That has been true for a while. But at the same time, I believe that what we're already seeing this year is that the water imbalances continue and perhaps even more wildly than last year, because on one end of the river, you have drought, you know, Sichuan, kind of Western Guizhou province, but in central Guizhou and in Hunan and in Jiangxi province, you have flooding. So in the middle reaches, you have flooding, flash flooding, because a month ago, they were in the worst drought ever as well. So this continued imbalance is happening, it's being recognized, and you're now starting to see, again, power shutdowns in some cities, water rationing in others, Farmers trying to pull their crops out before the big rain comes in. Other farmers trying to get their crops in before the rain starts. I mean, there's a lot of activity that's at an emergency level or a heightened awareness level. And I think that that is something that it's not unique, but it certainly has continued with each year that we've been seeing. And so I would say the general trend that I predicted last year is largely there. Obviously, you would hope for different things, but you also have to recognize we're headed into a recession, or at least people are planning for that. They're worried about it. Unemployment, they have a lot of considerations, and I think they're they're really trying to make do with what they can. So we haven't thrown the full kitchen sink at it, but we're getting there, I think, pretty quickly. What's your forecast for Yangji River Basin? Have you seen any evidence to suggest river levels have been restored? Well, so in the last couple of weeks, you've had some areas of the reaches be able to fully open to two-way traffic, but that's only the last week or so, and perhaps as a result of this flash flooding. And I think this is the challenge is, are we living in a moment or should we be thinking about the trend more widely? And I think what I'm trying to maintain more focus on is, What's the longer term? Like if we look at this current month in the perspective of the year and perspective of last year, are we any better or worse off? And I don't think we have an answer yet because only in the last couple of weeks has it gotten much hotter as that that heat wave moved up from Southeast Asia into Southern China. And already you've seen in Shanghai and Chengdu and other states, record temperatures for May and starting to get close for June. And if that trend continues, then we're on a worse trajectory than we were last year because it started really in early July, late June. And so, again, I don't think we're fully through the cycle to be able to fully assess or understand that. But, you know, if, if you just take the last two weeks, it doesn't look great in terms of will we be better off than last year at the river level, but also in the wider climate level. There's been much made of the short-term solution to the power outages last year, which has seen mm. a massive investment in coal-burning power plants. And the Beijing yes. central government increased its coal power capacity by 38%, so it could generate power for an additional 275 million homes. And we have also reported even more coal capacity has been improved 2023. So, Richard, what's your take on their strategy? Is that the only card that they can play? This is COVID zero for the food, water, energy nexus. They are working with limited tool sets 
that are hampered by the speed of the challenge and the scale of the challenge that's growing. And I think they're not wrong to ensure that power in these provinces stays on. That was a heavy tax that residents, businesses, cities paid last year when they lost the ability to keep the lights on, to keep water flowing you know, through the hydro dams. And so they're backing that up and that's called resilience. It's not the preferred way for someone who's environmentally oriented, but it's certainly one that if you're worried about the economy and also some preservation of the environment in terms of the water that, you know, you don't want to be drawing out all the water to make these equations work. So it's very zero sum in that coal doesn't come water free. It's a very water intensive energy process in itself. So again, I don't know what the outcome will be because we need to see what actually plays out, but it won't solve the problem. It will just buy them a little bit more time and hopefully get them through a weather cycle if they're looking at it like that. That is reminiscent of, say, California, who just got the biggest water and snow dump in the history and refilled all their lakes that we thought were going dry forever. So maybe we're just trying to make our way through a, a cycle of some kind. But I, I, I would view this as it's a Band-Aid approach. It offers resilience to the economy and to industry and to residents. And that's great because those are warm regions. They're highly economically productive. You need to keep that going. But does it solve the water problem? No. Well, can you talk to us about China's food supply? The past week has seen an emergency harvest of wheat to try to save it from storm damage. What's your forecast for the months ahead? Well, my long-term view of this is still very much that China wants to be a food-resilient country. It wants to be able to feed itself in all the major staples. But this challenge makes that very difficult to do. And so we've seen in the sugar region and rice region and wheat region that they are really trying to find ways to get the most out of the ground with a limited water supply, or they're at least recognizing that the climate change and water issues, they're a threat to their productive capacity in these regions. So you're seeing a lot of activity there. The way they make that work in the short term is they import. And you know, maybe in part because the renminbi has been sliding, so now the, the US dollar they should offload by buying agricultural crops, or just the fact that they just need more from their local domestic market. That's putting a lot of pressure on global markets for global supply chains. At a time when you have Vietnam saying, we're going to cut our rice exports, India saying, we're going to end our rice exports. So it's, it should be very clear that the challenge becomes, as other countries are unwilling to export, how do they feed themselves? And again, I think that this will drive ultimately policy investment innovations into domestic food production, resilience, water efficiency, you know, the, the highest technology when it comes to, say, greenhouses and new crop genetics as well. Like that's something that they've been looking at. So they're looking at everything. The challenge is you can't just see the result in one cycle at a one farm. It will take five years, 10 years for a lot of these things to take hold and for the fruit to be born on the tree. Richard, are you getting any sense of alarm or awareness about the coming El Nino in China, either in state media or social media? Well, I think that we saw the announcement yesterday from Beijing that El Nino is coming, but practically speaking, probably not yet. But again, I guess this gets back to how severe will the weather patterns shift around that? How hot will it get in the next two weeks? And is that really any different than what they went through last year? If it's not any different, it won't be a higher sense of urgency. They'll just be working harder to solve that particular crisis at that particular moment. Now, if it's like a standard El Nino that takes years to kind of cycle through, 
the good and bad news is that they don't have to be as alarmist, but they have to maintain this heightened sense of awareness and action for multiple years. It won't be something that will pass with two weeks and it won't be a break in the weather. It will be a cycle that they have to invest into and plan for. The upside of that being, if they make the right investments, they'll see gains over time. And I think China's excellent when it comes to infrastructural investments, when it comes to, to longer term planning, when it comes to putting in physical pieces that have a long term benefit. And maybe this will help to catalyze some of those investments, particularly at a time when they're going to be doing infrastructure projects instead of maybe building more roads. They start looking at how they can create resilience in different systems that are sustainability oriented. Richard Brubaker, as always, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. China's coal-fired power plants are mostly concentrated along the southeast coastline and clustered around Beijing and Shanghai. But its massive hydroelectricity program is mostly centered around the Sichuan Basin in the southwest, in Yunnan province, bordering Laos and Vietnam in the south. There are more than 40 hydroelectric power stations here, generating a huge amount of electricity for the neighboring province of Guangdong. Guangdong province is also known as the factory of the world. If you have ever bought textiles, clothes, electrical goods, furniture, toys, vehicle parts, or musical instruments made in China, they're most likely made somewhere in the Guangdong province. My colleague CGG has been keeping a close eye on what's happening in Yunnan. Hi, Sichi. Hey, Holly. Sichi, the electricity generated in Yunnan province is crucial to the workshops and factories in Guangdong. What's its status as we enter this El Nino cycle? So to answer that question, we may need some geographical background first. Yunnan is located on the upper reaches of Yangtze River, and it houses seven of China's top 10 hydropower stations. And it is China's second largest hydropower province, and 80% of its local supply is from hydropower. But such a province has been experiencing droughts for months. So rainfall in the province in the first four months of the year dropped by more than 60% from the same period last year. So this made the local hydropower stations struggle, and it means that they cannot supply enough power being demanded. And the situation has shown little signs of recovering even as the region enters the rainy season in June. So Kuiming Power Exchange Center estimated that the gap between supply and demand was as much as 1.4 billion kilowatt hours in June. And the province has already been limiting the power consumption of some of its enterprises since late last year so that they can at least guarantee the power supply to the residential use. Suchi, can you tell us more about the factories in Guangdong? How do you rely on the hydro schemes in Yunnan province? The key is Yunnan also bears the responsibility for supplying electricity to Guangdong. To give you an idea of how much power Guangdong uses, it consumes more electricity than anywhere else in China. And more than 20% of its power comes from other provinces. And Yunnan is the biggest supplier. 
And there's another official data that shows that the amount of electricity Yunnan sent to Guangdong dropped by one third in the first quarter of the year compared with last year. And Guangdong province, as you can feel in Hong Kong, <laughs> has just entered its peak season for energy consumption, which rises sharply from June to August due to the high temperatures. And the bad news is what is going on in Yunnan. Why is the peak season in June? So as you can feel in Hong Kong, the temperature during the summer is quite high for Guangdong province. And it is also the manufacturing powerhouse of China, which means a lot of factories are based in Guangdong. And for those factories, a few months before Christmas is their busiest season of the year because they need to manufacture their products to be sent to the West for holiday shopping season at the end of the year. So has there been any discussion of potential blackouts or rationing in Guangdong that you have heard of? So far, not yet. And this year's China economic recovery has been slow. And the export sector has also been struggling. So maybe Guangdong may not need so much power this year. But the thing is, it has happened before. And that's why people now are worried. So the last time it was in May 2021, when droughts in Yunnan caused real power rationing in parts of Guangdong. And the more recent case was in Sichuan last year. So Sichuan is China's biggest hydropower province. But last summer, the droughts and heat waves there caused severe power shortages and it cut local residential use and the energy supplies to coastal provinces such as Shanghai and Zhejiang. So the key is this power supply dilemma caused by extreme weather, global warming has persisted for two consecutive years in China. And now people are increasingly questioning the reliability of the existing electricity supply structure in the country. Remember, China is still the world factory, but if a stable power supply cannot be guaranteed here, how can foreign companies trust you and put their supply chain in your country? Thank you, Sichi, for your time. We'll follow your reports on SCMP.com. Thank you, Holly. My colleague on the science team is Echo She, based in our Beijing bureau. Hi, Echo. Hi, Holly. Hey Echo, not long ago you filed a story on research from Chinese scientists who had identified a new type of drought happening across the world. Can you take us through what they found? Yes. So their study was on flash droughts. Well, it is different from the droughts we understand because droughts are typically slow onset phenomenon. They usually develop in several months or maybe even years and uh, become severe. But flash droughts are kind of a new phenomenon. Uh, some scientists say it's kind of a new normal because of climate change. And it means that droughts can develop very fast, maybe in just uh, several weeks and become severe. So it will pose severe impacts on agricultural production, on people's lives. That's why scientists are interested in this topic and want to know more about it. So with these flash droughts, did they identify where they were happening? Yes. The concept of flash droughts was 
proposed in 2000s, but it didn't gain much attention until 2012, when there was a severe drought in the United States. It was the most severe drought in the U.S. since the 1930s, and uh, it led to over $30 billion in economic losses. And uh, since then, scientists are interested in knowing more about flash droughts. And the previous studies found that climate change has increased the frequency of flash droughts in South Africa and China. But in the new study led by Chinese scientists, they wanted to know more if there is a global transition from slow to flash droughts. And their study discovered that flash droughts are increasing globally, and uh, they identified some places. For example, uh, they found that flash droughts were most notable in North and uh, East Asia, Australia, Europe, Sahara, and the western coast of South America. Echo, it's very interesting that you mentioned that the first flash drought was in 2012, which was three years after the El Nino in 2009. So talking about China, what does it mean for the country? Well, actually, the El Nino events in 2009 also resulted in another severe drought in southwestern China between the fall of 2009 and the spring of 2010, and it was the most severe drought in the region since records began, and it was related to El Nino. So as we are witnessing another El Nino events this year and next year, some scientists say that we should be prepared. Well, for China, I think for one thing, early warning is very important because the onset of flash droughts can be very quick. So it may have impacts on the farmers, on the people's lives, and we should be better prepared. Meanwhile, flash droughts may have irreversible impacts on the terrestrial ecosystems, and uh, it may raise challenges for drought monitoring and uh, prediction. Echo, we asked Richard Brubaker this question, but we'll ask you as well because you just mentioned early warnings. Are you getting any sense of warning or preparations for this summer in state media or social media in China? Yes, actually, there was a presser by the National Meteorological Center. It was on the El Nino this summer and uh, what should people do? So the expert with the National Meteorological Center said that El Nino was already on the way and that we should be prepared for extreme weather events this year. The expert also warned about the heat waves in northern and central China because that can be related with the El Nino events. And also uh, the expert also warned about extreme drought in southern China. And yesterday there was an announcement from the National Trade Union Center. It issued a notice that required employers to prevent the occurrence of heat stroke. So preventing heat stroke, what are the exact measures that employers should do? Okay, they ask the employers to provide the workers with necessary individual protected equipment. They also said workers should avoid from working outside during noon, and also employers should issue high temperature allowances. 
Echo, we spoke to you last year about what happened after the heat waves in China, and it sounds like it's going to be a lot more challenging for China this year. We'll continue to follow your stories on scmp.com. Okay, thank you, Holly. We're focused on the science of climate change in this episode, but there's something much bigger that looms constantly over the subject. And it's a reality that China and the United States are the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. Just this week, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers announced the best way to guarantee world peace is for China and the U.S. to work together to solve the problems of climate change. Just over a month ago, the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, said he'd been invited to Beijing to restart talks over climate change. We're still waiting to see when that trip might happen. In the meantime, keep up to date on everything that's happening inside China and climate science, renewable energy, and the green economy at scmp.com. My name is Holly Chick. Thanks for listening. See you in Seoul. Bye for now.